our loving and merciful Lord Jesus, the one who is more gracious than we can understand, the one who is full of truth that saves our souls. We acknowledge today that your name is so beautiful, it's powerful over everything. It's powerful over guilt. It's powerful over cultures. It's powerful over shifts in legalities. It's powerful over all beings on this earth. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that you'd keep us in that. We've heard from your word that your, your beautiful name can heal all wounds. And may today be the day that our wounds are healed and lifted up to you. And may this be the day when we overcome, not because of what the teacher says, but because of the truth of your word. And may you make that the point today, even as we have to go through and consider some difficult things in our world today, because you've told us to engage our world with your good news and the hope of things that are not seen. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for being here. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> oh, I am so glad to see you here today. And uh, I just, uh, we have a conversation to have today that's a, a serious subject. Uh, it's, this is the PG-13 one, at least one of the PG-13 ones, parents. Uh, if you're uh, here, we're going we to have some graphic things, but not on the screen, but just some things to talk about later on in the message. And... Um, <clears throat> You know, if there's anybody I'd want to have a conversation with, it's you all. <laughs> I, I like you. Regardless of where we're coming at things here, uh, I am so glad that you're here. And I hope you can uh, hear the whole conversation. Uh, in fact, we're talking about the sanctity of human life and what does the Bible have to say about it and, uh, and, and what is the biblical worldview and that sort of thing. And whenever, you know, you come to the controversies of, in the world today, you got to talk about that. But because we know that there's, um, you know, experiences and cross pressures going this way and that way in people's lives, and we've all got experiences in our past and that sort of thing, I just want to say a couple of things about what I've been praying that there will be clarity on as we go through this. The first thing I want to be real clear about is what we're not talking about. We're not talking about, when we talk about a sanctity of human life, we're not talking about miscarriages, as painful and as hard as those are. And the procedures that need to be done medically to, to um, you know, uh, remedy those situations. We're not talking about that. That's in the hands of God. So if anybody ever, see, I'm very concerned, you'll hear me later talk about this, very concerned about how we use language today. And you may have heard that language used of something that's, that's touched your life or family, it's touched our life or family. It's also, we're not talking about suicide today. Because, uh, you know, as painful and horrible as that is, and it's touched many of us, it's touched us in an extended family way uh, on one side of our family. As, as painful and horrible as that is, that's not your fault. And, and secondly, that's not what we're talking about when we talk about assisted suicide. In fact, I'm not even going to talk about it in those terms because I don't think that's the right term. I think it's assisted euthanasia. That's a different thing. And, and uh, we're not talking about end-of-life care when all the, you know, uh, extremities have been done and everything's been, been worked on and, and, and someone chooses not to have a treatment or something like that, that's not what we're talking about because here's the problem. Our medical uh, abilities have outlived our biology and our spirituality. I mean, today we are technological giants but moral pygmies, okay? And so that's, that's the problem. And, and as we go to this, I just want to be real clear that any women in the room and any men 
that are in the room that have been touched by these matters or these issues or have even events in your own life or have advised people or friends in their own life. We're all on the same footing here because we're not talking about the past. We're not trying to dig that up. That's what Christ is here to, to forgive, okay? And Christ is here to heal if, if you know, we, we have something that we just can't let get rid of. Uh, we're all in the same boat here. And, and I hope we can listen with, with those kinds of ears and eyes. And, um, uh, you know, I know there's some people in some of these matters we're going to talk about who might say, well, you're a man, so you can't really talk about it. Uh, and you have no real right to say about it, but here, here's what I would say to that. Today, what we're trying to do is demolish strongholds, as Paul said. We're trying to tear that down. We're not trying to tear people down. We're trying to tear down strongholds of ideas that are inflicting people and imprisoning people, and that is my business. <laughs> so that's why we're going to do that, okay? So having said all that, and uh, you know, I'll try to make that clear as we go on, we want to be about mercy and grace here. Um, let me just start it off this way, because this is going to help us for the next three weeks of subjects, three more weeks of controversy. Um, thank you for showing up today, by the way. <clears throat> um, and I was listening to a podcast that Sharon told me about by Sam Alberry, who is, is a, he's a great teacher. We're not talking about him this week. We'll talk about him in two weeks. Uh, but he mentioned in a podcast on the Gospel Coalition, if you know what that uh, app is, uh, uh, he, he men mentioned in his podcast that there's a, a book out that I hadn't heard about, which, you know, my ears perk up. Um, and it's a, it's a book on the sociology of morality. In other words, how people get their morality, where we judge, you know, how do we make our moral decisions, where do our decisions come from? And it's not a Christian book in, in, in that way. Uh, it's actually from a sociologist who works at a business school in New York named Jonathan Haidt. And the name of the book is uh, The Righteous Mind. But in The Righteous Mind, uh, Haidt uh, articulates in a very clear way uh, certain what he calls taste buds or certain intuitions that people have from which we draw our morality. I mean, when you have a moral decision to make, nobody goes back to the documents, really. I mean, unless you've already know the documents, like the document of the Scripture, nobody goes back to the doctrine. Nobody goes back to, you know, what did my mom and dad say? Everybody just kind of goes into what they feel is, is true, and, it, 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 and, and what has shaped your feelings and your emotions and your intuition sort of dictates it, Right? And in, within that, those intuitions, there are six intuitions or six taste buds that have shifted and changed today in terms of people's morality. Let me tell you what the six taste buds are first that, that people have always had. The first one is, is care, as in care versus harm to somebody. You know, is this care or is this harm? Uh, fairness, loyalty, authority, sanctity, as in the nature of uh, meaning purity, uh, that's a moral decision. Uh, or liberty, or freedom. That's a moral decision. Do we get freedom? But what Haidt is pointing out is that things have shifted. And these are word, my words now, what I'm, what I'm going to now, not his words, but I'm trying to articulate what he said. You see, care today, and, this, and it's been eight years since his book came out, by the way. Care today means discomfort is harm. In other words, if I have a different worldview than you, if I believe there is a God and I try to persuade you and that makes you feel uncomfortable... I'm being immoral in this society today. It's a, I made you feel bad. Because remember, feelings, intuition, I made you feel bad, so I must be immoral, okay? That's what that means. Fairness today has moved over into the area of absolute personal autonomy. The only thing that is fair in our culture today, and this, is, this stuff is particularly taught, I mean, particularly a part of university and college campuses, right? But fairness today <clears throat> means that I have to give absolute autonomy to you 
over your decisions, over your whole life, and support it and so forth, even if it's in direct contradiction or direct violence to what my absolute decisions are, right? My autonomous decisions. And so that's, it, it, it causes a conflict, and that's part of why we're here uh, talking about this. Thirdly, uh, loyalty. Identity must be served. So loyalty has become an idea of identity. You need to be loyal to me as a person, as a human being. Whatever I say my identity is, you have to serve it. You have to accept it. You have to support it, regardless of what God says about it or anybody else. That's the deal. Fourthly, Authority has moved over into the realm of choice, and this is what we're going to talk about today. Choice is individual. It's autonomous. It's personal. And so therefore, you know, uh, the only person that can make choices for me is me, and you is you. Of course, what if those choices clash? We'll get to that a little later. But sanctity or purity has moved over into a very interesting realm. It's ideological purity. It's not actually moved over, it's moved down into ideology or political purity. Let me give you an example of what that means. Sanctity being purity used to mean, you know, being a pure person, living a pure life, a moral life. Now it's more, the morality is tied to certain ideologies. Uh, let me just tell you something, uh, an illustration that happened this week um, that uh, is not going to be political. I'm not going to tell you who it is or what side of the aisle they're part, but it illustrates what this is. Now, a certain politician had supported something in the press and uh, supported defeating something that actually ultimately was defeated, okay? Big hella blue. And then a, a journalist interviewed this politician this week and said, well, here are the facts of what actually happened. How do you square that with what you promoted and what actually, what, what, what happened when you promoted what you promoted? You know, how do your facts square with this? It was at, at odds with what this politician had been saying. And the politician spoke, this is on a broad national broadcast now, said, it doesn't matter what the facts are, I'm on the right side of this issue. And anybody who has reason in their brain or any logic will ultimately understand that I'm on the right side, the moral side of this issue, regardless of what the facts are. So you have a fact morality split, or you could put it this way, a truth morality split going on in society. And that's what it means by ideological purity is required beyond anything else. Finally, liberty. Liberty is another way of saying freedom, isn't it? Freedom in this day and age, in this culture, has become amoral, not immoral, amoral. In other words, it has nothing to do with morality. In fact, it has everything to do with autonomy and individuality. I can do whatever, whenever, however I want. It's my choice. That's what it's moved into. So you, you look at this and you realize that my personal autonomous feelings and emotions and so forth, those have become sacrosanct. And what that means is, particularly in light of, you know, discomfort is harm, that means just by being a person who holds a different worldview, like a Christian worldview, that is different than the rest of the culture and society, I become at odds with that person. Just automatically, can't even listen to you. Because you're doing harm to me. You're making me feel uncomfortable. And if you try to persuade me that there is a God and I don't want to believe there's God, then... You know, that's an immoral thing, you see? So what we're doing here, we've discovered, we've been digging around, and we've looked for the enemy. We've discovered the enemy, and the enemy is us. Enemy is Christians who believe these things, believe the Bible, and so forth, right? I mean, that's, that's the way it's sort of painted in the culture today. Yes, the new morality has 
all these mixtures of old moralities and so forth, but there are things that are brand new in this new morality that have never been on the planet before, and yet we're all supposed to just kind of go along with it. And Christians are the ones that are on the outs. We're the ones that are affront just by believing, just by existing, just by being, we're an affront to the culture. So I'm glad you came to Eastridge today. That's on the end of the message. Uh, go out and have a happy time in Happy Valley. And please don't get into trouble, okay? Don't make anybody feel bad. And I don't want to overplay that or be too sarcastic about that. But here's another way of saying it, okay? What we're faced with today is autonomous choice morality, or what I will call ACM. That's what we're living with now. That's what's changed. That's why you've got these cross pressures. And that's why when we talk about sanctity of life issues, people who've involved in, you're not alone in, in those events that have happened in your life. Even if you've chosen to do things, I know I, I get all that, but there's other people involved, right? There's doctors, there's family, there's advisors, there's friends, there's all this. And sometimes it's just flat out abandonment that, you know, you're isolated, you're all alone, everybody runs away, because that's kind of what uh, autonomous choice morality does, is it dumps it all on you. Oh, we don't want to deal with that, and runs away. And so, so there's this cross pressure. It's sort of like being, uh, you know, in a cold front where everything's cold like it was last week. And then all of a sudden, a heat wave comes over the top and your ears are popping and the thunder and lightning starts going, and, right? That's kind of what it's like being in this culture. And, and everybody's swimming in it. We are as Christians, but our non-Christian friends are too. So our call is to be people of grace and truth, like we said in the first message of this series. So, if that's all true, what does the Bible have to say about human freedom and choice? What does it have to say about this? Now, for many people we come in contact with, maybe somebody in the room, I don't know, just look straight up front, nobody will know. Um, but freedom and Bible in the same sentence is an oxymoron, right? Because it, it's, it's actually the sort of the, the trap, the, the box that people are, Christians are trying to shove me into and so forth. Well, no, that's not true, really. Well, how, how about we look at, I'm hoping we can look at what the Bible actually teaches today, what Jesus actually teaches, and what it actually says, and just decide for ourselves instead of letting the talking heads tell us what really is freedom? What is really freedom in our choices and in our morality? Where is that to be found? And let me just summarize real quickly, before we look at a teaching of Jesus, summarize real quickly the basic teachings about human life in the Bible. Because I, I, you know, it, it speaks about morality all through the Bible. So we'd have to go through Genesis to the maps today in order to get that all covered, and I'm pretty sure you don't have that kind of time. So let me just summarize quickly a few things that I think most of us would agree with if we read our Bible at all. And if you haven't, read your Bible. Here we go. It's a human life, not just something like it. In other words, this is what we talked about last week, the split between the soul and the biology. This radical dichotomy, the Bible knows nothing about it. It's much more holistic. Human life has value on both sides, both ends, that is, in the beginning of life and the end of life on earth, and all the way through. And of course, it's a warm-up for those of us that are Christians. We know it's a warm-up for eternal life. That's the whole point. And so all that leads to the question of this, who is, who's got the authority over life and the body? Who gets to make the choices about when it ends and so forth and so on? And who starts it? How does that all fit together? Well, 
Like I just said, what's interesting is Jesus lived in a time when he walked the earth that was, um, was not a very congenial culture to life. I mean, they had a, the Romans were doing, killing people in horrible ways for, for all kinds of things, this thing called the cross. So human life wasn't respected nearly what God means for it to be respected then either. But Jesus, interestingly enough, had a lot to say about human life, and he had a lot to say about the ACM, the Autonomous Choice Morality. He did, they don't call it that, but basically he talks a lot about our choices in life. So look with me for, uh, at uh, Mark chapter uh, 8, beginning of verse 34. We're going to look about four or five verses. <clears throat> and, and this is a story that shows up in the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It shows up in other ways, but not this story in, in the book of John, in the gospels. This is a very key piece of Jesus' teaching. Look what he says. Verse 34, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, then the Son of God will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. So the first thing he says is deny yourself. Boy, talk about contrary to our culture. <laughs> he says deny yourself. What's he talking about there? It's a pretty strong word. It means it's an, it's an imperative, <clears throat> um, uh, it's an aorist imperative in the Greek language, which means nothing to you, but you're going to impress your friends that you know that. This is basically heresy in 2019 to the cultural norm because it means that you withhold from yourself, you, 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 you deny some of your gratification, some of your, um, your wishes, your desires, your hopes for something better. That's what this means. You, you don't just, you know, make all your choices on your own, but you've got something higher than, than the autonomous choice morality that you're working off of. And Jesus says, I want you to deny yourself um, things. And what, what, he's, what he's saying here is, is, is hold back from those gratifications and so forth. You see, um, he's, he's saying, you know, sin has changed the goal of life. When, when the serpent came into the Garden of Eden and sin entered the world, what happened is had, um, there was this massive shift that the goal of life is what I want. It's my selfish choices. It's my selfish ideas. And so therefore, you know, that's what, you know, humankind ever since has been about because that was the lie that Satan told. You know, that God just doesn't want you to know all this stuff over there. That's what he said to Eve. And so Jesus is simply saying, no, no, I want you to stop that's the denial part, and turn away from that for a moment and just consider the possibility that maybe God has a better goal for your life, and maybe it has to do with selfless dependence on Him. And all of your life, moving it across the table and saying, it's no longer my autonomous choice, Jesus, it's your choice. And that is what He means when He says, pick up Take up your cross and follow me. I mean, that's confusing to us. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Pick up your cross. <clears throat> you think it was confusing to us, confusing to them, because that was the, they'd seen people crucified. They'd smelled it. They knew it was the worst way to die. In fact, Peter, just a few verses before, up in verses 32 and 33, 
Jesus says, I'm going to go to the cross. Peter pulls him aside and said, hey, no, no, don't tell these guys you're going to die. No, come on, you're not going to. And Jesus turns to him and says, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> what must have that been like? Um, that's not funny. I mean, it's like, wow. Was he calling Peter Satan? Well, not exactly. He was calling what Peter was involved in, that, that, that Satan was using him in his life, that, that, that Jesus was saying, look, I've already been through the temptations with Satan. I don't need you tempting me on this one. And, and, and so when he says, take up your cross, he's talking about crucifying my old sinful nature that it says my wants, my gratifications, my desires, myself, whatever I choose, that's the, uh, that's the, the basis of all morality, the autonomous choice morality or the, the, the ACM. And so basically what Jesus is saying about our choices is, he's saying, hey, I want you to slide it across the table and real freedom is over here. He's saying something that just doesn't connect until we pause and let him, let the Holy Spirit kind of open up our minds and hearts to tell us what it is because it's because of the culture and the morality that we're swimming in today. He says, life of freedom, you get that by giving up your life. He said, he's saying, you know, a life full of hopeful choices by giving up your lonely, autonomous choices, that you're not all alone, that you're not all, all, all uh, um, it's all your life and wrapped up in a very small package, and that's it. In fact, that's what he means when he goes to uh, verse 35, and he says, you know, if somebody wants to save their life, they're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake in the gospel, then, then, you'll, um, then you'll gain it. And, and the, the word here for life, he's doing a little play on words. It's the word pasuke, which we get the Greek word psychology from. And, and it means, you know, the, the study of the self. The word could better be translated self. You push all the, who you are, all yourself across the table, body, soul, and spirit, and put it in my lap, and that opens a whole new world of freedom. It doesn't maybe seem like it right now, but because I know how life's supposed to work. That's what gives you all the life and hope and freedom. And so we begin to see what he's talking about when we realize in verses 36 and 37, he says, what good is it to save your life and get everything you want in life, but you lose your soul? What if you gain the whole world? And think about another time Jesus would have said this. Remember in Luke 4 and Matthew 4 when he's out in the desert being tempted by the devil? And the devil says to him, if you'll just bow down and worship me, I'll give you the whole world. And Jesus basically says, that's not my choice. That's God's choice. It's his world, not yours, buddy. And so Jesus is asking us to do something that, is, that, that he has already done. He, he knows what that, cho that choice is like. That ultimate choice of sho shoving all that I am across the table and if he, if he knows that, he also knows the, the truth of this freedom that he's saying that God is offering to you and to me. And here's what he's telling us so far. You will no longer be anonymous. God knows your name. You'll no longer be autonomous. You'll no longer be alone, even in those decisions and those excruciating times in your life. You'll no longer be relying on yourself and only yourself. You will have a God who understands everything and who created you to rely on. And finally, a Jesus follower then with those options submits 
their choice to him. So it's not autonomous choice anymore. It's a choice. Christianity then is a radical choice to choose to give all that I am to God, all that I am to Christ. But it's not an autonomous choice because that is a prison. That is a lonely, horrible place that many, many people find themselves today in this autonomous choice society that chews people up, frankly. And you see Jesus trying to rescue people from this whole thing, to rescue people from the ACM uh, all the time. And this loneliness of, you know, I'm in charge of my own destiny and all that kind of stuff. You see him doing it all the time. For example, two pages later, or one page in, in my Bible, in chapter 10, there's this story of the rich young ruler. That's why we, the reason we call him that is because we don't know his name. Verse 17, it says this, Jesus started on his way. A man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher. So this guy was, you know, passionate. Good teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit the eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. So he's putting the, the, the point on, on God, this, this, this choice business on God. He, he's, he's illustrating how that works, even though he was God. Verse 19, you know the commandments. You shall murder, not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud and honor your father and mother. So he doesn't even hit all the 10. He's assuming we know the 10. Teacher, the, the man declared, all things I, these things I have kept since I was a boy. Now watch this. Jesus looked at him and loved him. What must have that been like? He just, just looks at him and loves him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. And the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Was the wealth the thing that was sinful and wrong? Nope. It's not. What the, what, what, what the problem for this guy was he is unwilling to give his way of making life great to Jesus and saying, is that what you want for me? He couldn't slide it across, his choices across the table. That is what kept him from the healing and the wholeness that Jesus wanted to give him. And, and it's not just him it's all of us are kind of in this together. In fact, if you go down to verse 24, if you've got your Bible open, the disciples are amazed that he says this because they're saying, well, who in the world can be saved then? What, what in the world? Because we're all involved in trying to make enough money to live and so forth, right? How in the world can that be? And Jesus said, no, it's only through my grace and truth that it, you can be made whole again. You can make, be made human again. It, it reminds me of a, a situation I had that I, I think I've told this story here, but it's been a long time. It's a woman that came into my office, since we're talking sanctity of life, a woman came into my office, a Christian woman, who uh, began to tell me her story before she was a Christian. It was like, you know, 10 years or so before. And that's not really uh, significant at, at this point uh, in terms of where it happened. Uh, but she began to tell the story of how she had had an abortion and how she just couldn't shake the guilt. She began to cry and cry and weep. And as she was weeping, she kept saying uh, this, this phrase. She said, I've never done anything so horrible in all my life. Before or since, I've never done something so horrible. And when she said that, a thought came into my mind of something I'd heard from a, uh, another woman who's an evangelist named Becky Pippert, something that she had said a couple of decades before when I heard her speak one time. And, it, you know, you know, and if you've been around here, you know me, like if it's up here, it's coming out here. 
So what, what, what Becky Pippert said, I tried to chase it out of my mind. No, no, I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say it. And it kept coming back because she kept saying, I've never done anything so horrible in my life. And I go, okay, Lord, you know me. You made me. If it's here, it's coming out here. So if this isn't right, just like shut me up right now. And I said it. When she said it the next time, she said, you know, I've never done anything so horrible in my life. I said, yes, you have. And she, you know, jolted and looked at me. I said, what? I said, yeah, you have, and so have I. And she said, that's not funny. I said, I'm not, I'm not being funny at all. I said, you know, your sins and my sins, I've nailed Jesus to the cross. I've killed the Son of God. That seems worse, doesn't it? So, yeah, I've done more horrible things than that. And if God can forgive you and me for that, and forgive you and me through that, don't you think he can forgive you for the past things that have happened in your life? And don't you think he can forgive you for the choices you've made? And don't you think that he can actually take care of that one that you've now decided was a one? And she said, is that what the Bible says? I said, I, it doesn't say it exactly, but I think that's exactly what the Bible says. It doesn't say it specifically. And, and the, reality, the, the point of all that is, you know, nobody in this world, in this day, in this age, that is, you know, that we've all experienced the sin of this world, nobody is separate or above anybody else. And we're all swimming in it. And so if we're to live for Jesus in this world, we need a little extra help today, a little extra understanding of what's going on. So I want to just kind of swerve into some things because there's some, there's some secrets out there that nobody's telling you. Some of these I haven't even, hadn't even heard of until this week when I started digging into it. And I'm looking forward to this message being over so I can quit swimming in it, okay? Just personal problem. But I want to start off to kind of illustrate this with a, a story a short story by a man named Philip Dick. Philip Dick was a science fiction writer. He, wrote, he died in 1982. He's written some of the famous blockbuster movie stories that we've watched, like uh, Blade Runner, right? Starring Harrison and then Ryan. He, uh, he's, he, uh, he wrote Total Recall, starring Arnold. He wrote Minority Report, starring Tom. He wrote uh, Paycheck, starring Ben, and that was not much anything. Um, he wrote, uh, he wrote uh, oh, The Adjustment Bureau with Matt Damon and Emily Blunt. Yeah. Mary Poppins, the new Mary Poppins. Yeah. He wrote all those stories. So he was a prolific writer, and he's got some really good stories. But when Roe versus Wade came down in 1973, and I have no idea if he's a Christian. I don't think he was. But he was very disturbed by something that the Supreme Court said. What they did is what we talked about last week. They disengaged the definition of a human life from the biology. And when you disengage a person from the biology, then the line floats anywhere you want it. Whoever's got the power gets to choose where the line is of when a human person becomes a person. If it's not conception, where is it? And they, they, they just basically left it wide open. And this deeply disturbed Philip Dick. So he wrote another science fiction short story called The Pre-Persons. And boy, did he take flack for that. And I'm going to read you a section of the pre-persons today, because I think it clearly says what we need to say. 
Uh, and I may take flack for it. I don't know. And, and I'm, I'm committing a no-no here. I know I'm committing a no When you're public speaking, don't ever read people long passages of text because it's boring and it'll put them to sleep. But I guarantee you this is not a bedtime story, so I think we'll be okay. Here we go. Past the grove of cypress trees, Walter, he had been playing king of the mountain, saw the white truck, and he knew it for what it was. The thought that's the abortion truck, come to take some kid in for a postpartum down at the abortion place. And he thought, maybe my folks called it for me. And he ran and hid in the blackberries, feeling the scratches and the thorns, but thinking, it's better than having the air sucked out of your lungs. That's how they do it. They have a big room for it, for the kids nobody wants. Burrowing deeper into the blackberries, he listened to uh, to hear if the truck stopped. He heard its motor, and it didn't stop. It moved on, and so here's what happens. He made his difficult exit from the blackberry, uh, the berry brambles, shaking and in many places scratched and moved step by step in the direction of his house. And as he trudged, he began to cry, mostly from the pain of the scratches, but also from fear and relief. Oh, good Lord, his mother exclaimed, seeing him. What in the name of God, apparently she liked to use God's name in vain, have you been doing? He said stammeringly, I saw the abortion truck. And you thought it was for you? Mutely he nodded. Listen, Walter, Cynthia Best said, kneeling down and taking hold of his trembling hands. I promise, your dad and I both promise, you'll never be sent to the county facility. Anyhow, you're too old. They only take children up to 12. But Jeff Vogel, his parents got him in just before the new law went into effect. They couldn't take him now, legally. They couldn't take, take you now. Look, you have a soul. The law says a 12-year-old boy has a soul. So he can't go into the county facility. See, you're safe. Whenever you see the truck, it's for someone else, not you. Never for you. Is that clear? It's come for another younger child who doesn't have a soul yet. It's a pre-person. Staring down, not meeting his mother's gaze, he said, I don't feel like I got a soul. I feel like I always did. Now, I read that not to be overly dramatic, although maybe it is. But... That is no longer pure science fiction. And what I need to tell you now, because it's kind of, you know, media complicit and all that kind of stuff kind of scooted over, there are things with regard to human life and the sanctity of human life that are happening in our world and in our country that aren't that far off from this. Remember last week, Francis Schaeffer, the unthinkable becomes thinkable? Every generation, it kind of gets pushed further, especially when the law has become arbitrary as to where that line is that a person becomes a person. It shifts, and it shifts, and it shifts. That's what's been happening. And nobody's been talking about that that's been happening. Although there have been elites and people with the power who think they get to decide where that line is now, since we've unhooked ourselves from all of our old moralities, people like uh, Francis Crick, who was the co-discoverer of the DNA, a a brilliant scientist. Not to be confused with Francis Collins, by the way, the one who mapped the DNA, double helix. This is Francis Crick. 
his co-discoverer of DNA double helix, said no newborn infant should be declared human until it has passed certain tests regarding its genetic endowment. And if it fails these tests, it forfeits the right to life. Ooh, that's not that far off from the pre-person, is it? That's kind of pretty close. That's, that's, that's advocating what we used to call infanticide. Now we call it something else. I'll tell you in a minute. But here's the thing. There are some dirty little secrets in how life is viewed and what is happening to people in our society and in our world today that you don't hear about otherwise. In fact, like I said, you can, you can document, you go and look for the documentation of these. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying anything that can't be backed up. And in fact, some of this stuff I didn't know about until this week, all right? The first one is this, little dirty little secret, which is a gracious way of saying a lie. Um, abortion, more often than not, is a tremendous trauma for women. First of all, oftentimes they're all alone because that's the way society kind of cordons them off in making these decisions. But also, the dirty little secret is, is that, you know, they're told, well, just take care of it and you'll never think of it again. That just doesn't happen for most women. Some women, I'm sure there's some, but most women don't have a situation where they never think of it, they never have any regrets, never, nothing. And some people are struggling with tremendous guilt and there's nowhere to go with it in our society, in our culture, certainly not the avenues which got them into the situation in the first place. And so the question arises, who's really anti-women? Who's the one that's really foisting that on them? And here, speaking of anti-women, here's another little factoid. Worldwide, globally, by far, by far, there are more girl babies aborted than boys. That's just a fact. That's anti-women. Second little dirty little secret. And this is right here in our own state. The right to die becomes the duty to die. We were told that when we passed the law. When was that? Back in the 90s? It's the early days of starting this church. I know that. That assisted suicide. Remember that? I'm not calling it that. I'm calling it assisted euthanasia. Because here's the thing. Every totalitarian government, and I'm not going to mention any specific ones because I don't want to label people. I'm not, I'm not trying to call people names. But every totalitarian government that's ever... In the, last, in the 20th century at least, wanted to kind of move people into different places and change the description of what they're doing. They just simply changed the name. So this isn't assisted suicide. This is assisted euthanasia, okay? And suicide's horrible when it happens, but this is something completely different. This is assisted euthanasia for whatever reason at the end of life. Now, it becomes the duty to die, and what, what I mean by that is, is that, you know, the recent um, research in Oregon, we were the first... Remember, we have the first right to die laws, yay, in America. We're the first ones. In, in, in recent uh, research, it's become evident that more people than not have felt pressure to die. The more people than not have, um, you know, either from doctors or medical uh, expenses or from the fear, number one fear is I'll lose my autonomy and my control and I'll have to go somewhere I don't want to go. So I'm going to end it now. And by the way, there are four bills. I found this out this week. There are four bills in the legislative session right now in Salem on euthanasia. And the goal of these bills is to open it up to any reason for any way. Anytime you can get a prescription that says, yep, this person is hurting. You can get a, you, if these laws pass. Oregon right to die is down there, or right to life rather, is down there trying to fight 
uh, against these things. Uh, right now, and in, however long the legislative session takes, I think it's just several months in the winter, spring here. But that's going on in our own state. Third dirty little secret, and that is this. The end of term is the new line of demarcation of when it's not okay to take somebody. And what that means is the end of the pregnancy term, right up till the due date. In fact, in some places, like in New York State now, after they passed that law a month ago or so, where everybody got all excited and they made, they made it legal to have late-term abortions and, and, and end-of-term abortions and so forth, and, and they made it legal right up until the due date. In fact, when a mother's actually in, in labor pains, if she decides she wants one, that, it can happen legally there in the state of New York. And they passed this thing, and people were just cheering and laughing and crying and patting each other on the back on the legislative floor, if you've seen that news footage. And here's, here's the reality. <clears throat> that is, was never foreseen that that would happen. That is completely unthinkable, to, to push it that far into the unthinkable. But here's the thing I found out this week that I didn't know, and maybe you didn't know, because I don't think the media is talking about it. Do you know that in Oregon, late-term abortions are, are legal in seven states. In Oregon, we were the first. That's been legal since 1983 in Oregon right up until due date. Now, people say, well, that's rare that in due date somebody's going to do that. Well, yeah, it's probably rare. But out of the hundreds of thousands of, of uh, abortions that are um, done in America today, what if there's 100? What if there's 50? What if there's five? What if there's just one? Isn't it reason enough to say that? It's not, that's just not right. And here's the final one, the final little uh, dirty little secret. And then we're going to move on to something more positive. Partial birth abortion is here, and postpartum abortion is on the way. And this is where I have to get a little graphic, because it, it, you talk about feelings being moral. <laughs> it feels wrong not to at least tell you what partial birth abortion is, because we hear about it in the Congress, you know, all these, these, uh, these uh, bills that come forward to try to ban partial birth abortion, and they always get defeated. And what is that anyway? Partial birth abortion in case you didn't know, is when the baby's partially uh, um, born, but the head is kept in the birth canal, and the, this is the graphic part, the spinal cord is cut, so the baby will die. That's what it is, and that's happening in America today, and is legal in many places in America today, including here. Postpartum abortions is a euphemism. It's not really abortion. It's another one of these relabeling so that we can do what we want. It's what used to be called infanticide. After a child is born, postpartum, to either actively kill it or, or let it die. And you say, well, that can't be. That's not happening. Well, remember, have you heard about a guy recently in the news named Ralph Northam? Ralph is the governor of Virginia. And he actually has a pediatrics background. He was trained in uh, pediatric science, a doctor. And uh, before he got into all kinds of racial problems because of racism that he has exuded in the past, which is horrible enough, just before that, the week before, he was supporting a bill publicly that was before the Virginia legislature that's not that different, but took a step further than the one in New York. 
it was defeated in Virginia, but before it was defeated, Northam got up and, and supported it. And the journalist had found out that this would support a child, after, after a baby's been born, either leaving it to die or actively uh, work, making sure that it died because of the you know, change of mind of the parents or, or whatever. And, and uh, Northam, here's how he explained it. He says, it's all right. We would take the baby and make it comfortable and put it in a comfortable place until the mother decided whether she wanted it or not. That's infanticide. That's in part postpartum abortion. So what are we to do with all this? Well, people on one side of things and on the other side of things, I guess, would say, well, you know, if you don't want an abortion, just don't have one. If you don't want euthanasia, then just don't do it, right? Well, the problem is, is that choices can be lethal. And if my choices dehumanize people, then we're all affected, right? It's not autonomous. It's impossible to have autonomous choice. Let me give you one more illustration of this with regard to euthanasia. You know, um, in, in 2015, there's a, there's a journalist in Britain called, uh, her name is uh, Katie, uh, Katie Hopkins. And she wrote an op-ed, I think it was in the Times of London, but I'm not sure, saying that she had decided that, you know, we live in a country, this is England, we live in a country that can put dogs to sleep but can't put humans to sleep. And it's time that we make it easier to do so. And she said, in fact, I'm really keen on, on um, like euthanasia vans that would travel around and help people just make it easy for them to be euthanized. In fact, here's, here's the interesting thing. She says, uh, maybe she had read Philip uh, Dick's The Pre-Persons because in, in that story, Philip Dick says these trucks that go around have like a, a jingle to them, like the ice cream trucks to make everybody feel better. She said, we could put music with it and it could just drive into the neighborhood and make everybody feel... She said, I'm really keen on that. Or maybe she'd read the pre-persons or maybe she'd just read the news across the channel in Holland because the right to die people have been sending euthanasia vans into neighborhoods in Holland for long before that. That's actually happening in our world today. So what I, what I say is that affects all of us. And the closer I get to that end of life the more I realize it affects me, right? Those kind of choices affect all of us. You can't say that. So all, all I'm trying to say is something that I, I, I found a phrase or a sentence rather in, in Nancy Piercy's book, Love Thy Body, that I think says exactly the heart of what I'm trying to say. It says this, when Christians argue for the truth of biblical worldview, they are seeking to protect human rights and the dignity of everyone. I'm not trying to cram anything down anybody's throat. If anybody's doing that, it's the other way around, right? Because real freedom doesn't happen. More and more people die needlessly when we don't respect what God says about the human life created in his image. And we start floating our line of what that means when a human life begins, right? It's arbitrary. But because God is a God of justice, and a God of love who wants justice for women, wants justice for men, wants justice for the unborn, wants justice for uh, aged people, wants justice for terminally ill people. And all of us, there's good news in the Scripture. And I want us to end with the good news, even though I'm way over time. Just let's end with this good news about what God says about life, because I think some of us need some, some of this salved on our souls at the moment. You know, 
when one of the most powerful statements of what it means to be a human being is in Psalm 139. And Psalm 139 is always trotted out when we talk about sanctity of life, but there's a good reason for it. Here's what it says. For you uh, created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, and I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. That's who we are. That's who you are. That's who I am. You see, the wonderful thing about what God says about human life in the Scriptures is this, and this is the biblical worldview of life. Here it is. It says, human life, uh, uh, the human life of a human person begins in the womb. If you look at, for example, Jeremiah chapter 1, I think it's verse 5, God says, I saw you. It doesn't just say he saw Jeremiah in the womb. It says, I knew you in the womb. Very clearly. You can't know a blob. You can only know a person. The Bible reasons from biology, so it begins at conception. That's the line in the Bible. That moral value extends all the way through life to the end of earthly life. And of course, we know what he wants it to do is extend on into eternity. And finally, it is God who has the authority to number our days. It's his choice. It's his choice. Beyond what anything we might say. So what what do we do with all this? Well, here's what I think we as a church, as Christians, as people need to do. We, remember, we need to remember that grace and truth we talked about in the first message. We need to remember the, the mercy of Jesus. We need to remember what our vision statement is. Let me, let me remind you what that says. We will take every opportunity to show gospel love to lost people and to be companions of Jesus in making deep, resilient disciples which means our job is three things. Welcome the hurting, support those who are helping the wounded, and listen and love unconditionally to those in crises. Don't let them be alone. Regardless of people that make choices that we don't like, don't let them be alone. Love that way. And the wonder of the Scripture is, is that it it's sort of like if you become a Christian, you know, the moment you give your life to Christ, it's like, oh man, I'm carrying this sin. It's such a burden. The minute you do it, it's lifted off. It's like it turns around, it changes all of a sudden. That's the wonder of the scriptures. If there's a burden uh, that someone has, or, or if, you're, if you're feeling wounded by any of these issues for any reason, or, or, or just from our own sin and the regrets we have, we all got them, right? Uh, the scripture makes it clear what God wants to do with them. For example, Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, I love this verse. It says, He, that is Jesus, himself bore our sins. He's quoting Isaiah now. In his, body, uh, in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. If there's anybody that's got wounds in this planet, it would have been Peter, right? I mean, other than maybe Judas. I mean, he's the one that denied three times Jesus while Jesus is on trial and he's getting beat up. And, and Peter can apparently, because it says Jesus looked at him at one point, I think it was in Mark, he can see Jesus through the window and Peter's warming himself by the fire and this little servant girl says, hey, you know him, you're one of his followers. And he cusses her out and denies it. 
If anybody on the planet could make a disloyal, horrible thing uh, bigger than that, I don't know who it could be. I mean, how do you get over that? And that's the Peter who says, by his wounds we have been healed. How do you get over that? The same way David did. Remember, David was an epic sinner. He actually murdered a guy because he slept with his wife. Here you go. Look at what he says in Psalm 103. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he has removed the transgressions from us. Now that's freedom. That's not just liberty of my choices. That's freedom right there. Being set free from all that. And I'm going to call the band out here. And I want to revisit one statement of Jesus back there in Mark chapter 8 when he was in Caesarea Philippi and he pulled the crowds to him. And by the way, the crowds that Jesus drew to himself they, at Caesarea Philippi there, they weren't the legal scholars, they weren't the movers and shapers, they weren't the people that had any power over the levers of culture at all. They were just basic people, Jews and Gentiles together. That's just people like us. That's who he's talking to. And here's the first words out of his mouth. Whoever wants to be my disciple. You know what the key word is there? Whoever. Not whoever's got their act cleaned up. Not whoever doesn't have any regrets in their past. Not whoever's got the right ideology or the right politics or got it all figured out. Whoever wants to be my disciple. Take it all and push it all over to the other side of the table and say, it's yours. And deny yourself and say, what do you want? You make the choices for me, Jesus. And that's when the freedom begins. And that's when wholeness comes back to human beings. Let me pray for us. And if you have something you need to talk to God about, you just talk to him. Ignore what I'm saying. And there's a song after this that is powerful called So Will I. And I think if you can make this your prayer, it would help all of us to make this our prayer today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending Jesus for us to be the healer of all wounds. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for insisting that you live on it. We thank you for going through all the hardships and the difficulties and the choices that we've had to go through. But Lord Jesus, it's because of your walking with us daily that we love you more and more every day. And I just pray that in this room, in this place, there would be people who maybe have maybe experienced some wounds, have some burdens, some sins that haven't been given to you. And I just pray that this would be the day that there would be healing of all those sorts because only you know what it is we need. And only you know how we need to be transformed and changed by you. Thank you for loving us that much and never leaving us behind. And as we already sang, you don't leave the one. You come after the one, even if the one is me. We thank you for that, Lord Jesus. We love you. And that's why we pray in your name all the time. Amen.